Welcome to the Living Intentionally Podcast. My name is Chaim Loeb. In this podcast, you will hear and learn what breeds action. Where living intentionally leads to action. You will acquire knowledge from those who are in the state of action. Yes, I said action a few times. Why? Because this is the only way to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Welcome to the Living Intentionally Podcast. As you just heard, this podcast is about taking action, having guests that are taking action so you can learn from them. Today, we have Benson Fox. Benson is an experienced and certified transformation coach and crisis counselor, a major in psychology, Interior College, and currently a doctoral student in psychology at Adelphi University. In his own words, I help Jewish men looking to gain balance, efficiency, and joy in their personal and professional lives. Welcome to Living Intentionally, Benson. Thank you so much. That was a great introduction. I appreciate that. <laughs> Not a problem. So I want to jump right Thank into you. it, ask you something, because you know, I'm curious and, and, and I, I want my listeners to um, get to know you a bit, and I want to get to know you a bit more. So what's, what's a big dream of yours, and why is that a dream of yours? Great question. I would say that I've come to recognize that my ability to heal others starts with the capacity to heal myself. So, so I think it's a direct proportion. And so my dream is to be as healed as I can for myself to invest in um, whatever, whatever um, resources, whatever tools I could get for myself to heal so that I can then Provide the dream, and then um, stage phase two is to then be able to translate that healing for the entire world, um, one one person at a time. That's exciting. Why, why do you feel like um, you choose to uh, heal Jewish men as those other people mainly? <laughs> um, the, the true answer. The, the real answer to this question, I could give you other smart answers, but the real answer to this question is to heal myself. It's, it's an aspect of healing myself is to heal others that are in similar situations to, I think it's true. I'm saying, I think I'm being honest about myself. I think it's true for many people that many people, their niches, people go into substance abuse. People go into um, any field, really. It's really true. I think even for, let's say, people go into finance, anyone, I think any person's source of passion or dream in their life is connected to their love or pain points. So, you know, I think their, their pain points are um, whatever they need healing from or whatever they are truly, they truly love. I think it's going to be one of those two things. I think it's going to be a combination of those two things. So if people, let's say, love money because their association with money is of power, control, independence, they may go into a field that they can make the most amount of money. It's not necessarily as directly um, um, parallel to, let's say, mental health, mental health, you know, or fitness before I was fat. You know, it's not necessarily going to be that proportion, but it's going to be the associations built into that field as well. So it's not only for these kind of like good feel service industry type of things. Um, making a direct impact, but it's even the ones that make more indirect impact. I think people are driven to both pursue what they love and to um, heal their pain points. I love so that. I think I it's never, true for I myself. Never heard that, right. I never heard that um, angle of it. 
Um, so I love hearing new things. I mean, one of the reasons why I do living intentionally is to learn from others straight up. Um, it's selfish. <laughs> you know, I, I want to learn and I want to grow and, and I want to do it while in a way that others can also. So um, thanks for sharing that. I, I, I think that's a really awesome angle to look at it. Why, why you, meaning if someone's asked themselves why I want to do something, because a lot of people start doing something and they're like, well, why am I doing this? Like, why do I want to do this? Because I think one of the big, I would say, uh, driving points um, that guides somebody to um, creating the life that they want to do is knowing their why, right? And I'm sure that you can connect to that. So that's that's really good angle to to look at it. So thanks for, for sharing. Now, now I, I know you a little bit more and the listeners know you a little bit more. So that, that's exciting. I wonder, you know, before you went into um, psychology and we'll talk about your coaching in a little bit, um, before you decided or before you um, went into college in general to learn these, these things and pursue psychology, what do you wish you knew? Let's say somebody else is thinking about going into it. Um, what do you wish you've known, like you've known before? Yeah, great question. Um, a lot of things, but um, we could do a whole podcast just on that. Um, <laughs> a few things. One is, and as you said, it really pertains more to the coaching, which is that in order for a passion to last, it needs to be able to kind of sustain the more like harsh reality of the world. And what I mean by that is it has to be lucrative. You have to be able to, for a passion to last, it has to be something that you could actually make enough money from it that you could keep on pursuing it for the rest of your life. Um, so I feel like people go into psychology oftentimes, they're like, this is what I'm passionate. I want to help people. And they don't realize that 80% of what's going to make you successful is not how good of a psychologist or coach you are. It's going to be, how good of a businessman are you? So I think it's true for any passion, but that's something specific to psychology. Um, another thing I would say is, um, so I think the first one's the business angle. I think mm -hmm. the second point is, I think you got to be really honest with yourself. How, um, how, um, how good you are actually at this, meaning... I think people go into it, they're like, oh, I'm a nice guy. I like helping people. People naturally talk to me. And they think that's enough to kind of become a therapist. Um, and it's not. It's not. It, it's, it's, it's like an art form. It's extremely sensitive. If you're not really good at it, you can, you can make a negative impact on people. And I think the field's right now being flooded with coaches and therapists. The ones who will really survive are not only the ones who are going to be good at the business angle, which is the primary aspect of it, but in terms of just the impact of it and to protect your clients, you, you have to really be willing to go all out to kind of also be able to do a continuing education. Like I know, Chaim, I know you're very into that. You always like report on your statuses and things like nutrition, things like you're always learning. That's kind of like the commitment I think you have to be making as a when you're going into this field, not just like, I'm good at it. I like talking to people. Let me just do it. But are you actually really good at it? And number one, and then also committing to it for the long haul in terms of continuing education, training, um, supervision, experience. Yeah, I, I totally connect to that, that, that both those reasons, the business and the continuing education, because especially, you know, yes, you can learn from 
just experience, but in a way, if you want to speed up the process, um, you're going to want to learn and continue learning, um, continue growing your knowledge. So thanks for sharing that for sure. Um, I wonder, you know, what, what are you in terms of growing in terms of this is, you know, something that I'm curious about in terms of continuing your, your education, what are you reading or listening to, you know, right now or recently that has guided you, inspired you to continue your learning, continue your knowledge growth? Sure. Um, you mean besides for the Chaim Loeb statuses, posts, you have that, um, right. podcast? You I, have that right. You know, aside from, aside from that, obviously, that's that's built in. Um, also, interesting. Um, well, first thing you have to realize is I'm a currently a psychology doctoral student, <laughs> so right. there's not as usually as much of a need for input of more information because as it is, I'm doing eight hours of class a week. Um, plus another few hours a week of coursework, plus, you know, there's once a week an hour didactic from my externship, you know, it's a totaling 16 hours of additional. So it's like 24 hours plus, you know, plus coursework. And so there's, you know, there's not as need for me to continue my education concerning the fact I'm paying over $50,000 a year to do that. <laughs> but, but putting that aside, I would say I pick up a lot of things from my trainer who I work with. He helps guide me. Um, teaches me new things about um, how to improve my health, my body, my mind. I would say um, I listened to this one podcast. I'm blinking on the name. Um, and actually, I think it was the one that you suggested to me um, back in the day during Corona. I reached out to you. Um, yeah, I forgot was it, his name. Was it called The Mindset Mentor? Yes, that's it. <laughs> that's it. I listened to like, I've listened to about like 30 of his podcasts. So I give you credit for that. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that one was good for helping with this. Um, I read different psychology books too. So I've read, you know, let's say Dale Carnegie, um, Les Giblin. It's not as well-known of a book. It's called How to Have Confidence and Power in Dealing with People. Um, there's, you know, obviously Stephen Covey's Seven Steps for Highly Successful People. Um, yeah, and also, I, you know, I'm also part of the coursework for PsyD is also you read these more advanced um, therapy, therapeutic works. Um, I also like, you know, go on like, let's say LinkedIn or Facebook, I go on like, join these psychology groups or psychology posts, I try to get involved. I kind of try to ensconce myself in like my world. Um, and I found there's definitely been a, a clear evolution in how I've seen things. Over time, some things I've done uh, 180, some things I've refined, some things I've kept. Right. What do you mean by you've seen like a evolution in your field? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll share that. Um, growing up, I guess I've, I've seen firsthand how a lot of like some, let's say, CBT type of methodologies, I've seen the clear, let me put it gently, the limitations of such an approach. So that means cognitive. Do you want me... to explain what yeah. that okay. means? Yeah, sure. So CBT, um, let's say that means cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. So cognitive means, let's say, your thoughts, your feelings. Um, behavioral means your actions, um, things that are clearly measurable, um, things that you could see, clear symptoms, things you could point to. Um, so let's say a behavioral 
a behavior, let's just give an example of each. So let's say a behavioral point would be to let's say make an activity log. So let's say looking at making a schedule, um, incorporating behavioral activations, or let's say basically fancy in an elitist way of just saying things that you enjoy doing throughout the day that, you know, at times during the day that you may um, get down or could use a boost. So let's say working out or listening to music or singing or stretching, or it could be anything, something, you know, moving is a good idea. Um, and then let's say, or a cognitive approach would be kind of, you know, catching trick called triple C. Let's say catch, check and change your thoughts um, to, to make them accurate, compassionate and helpful to yourself. So if I have a thought that, that I say, you know, um, how, how dare this person cancel on me? He must not value my time, right? Um, so the way I'd catch the thought, I'd be like, okay. And then say, check it to be accurate. Is it personal? No, it's not personal. <laughs> Guarantee it's not personal. You know, the wedding, a thing, there's something else going on there. Then, then you'd say, make it compassionate. And you'd say, you know what? This is a person that you know, he did want to meet with me. He does care about my time. You know, he sees a value in what I bring to the table. Otherwise, he wouldn't have wanted to meet with me in the first place. You make it helpful to yourself and you say, you know, going forward for the future, um, maybe I'll check in with my appointments an hour before, two hours before, just to make sure that they're still on. So that way you, you attach like some type of action item for the future to that negative thought. But so, that, so that's like CBT. And I think there is a clear value to that in terms of how it gives, makes your life more functional. Um, and I think there's a, there's a big value to functionality. For, functionality is short-term survival. And I think that's, there's a valuable. But what I noticed is, is that when core issues are not addressed, um, so it can be toxic, unhealthy dynamics, uh, boundary making, um, feeling loved, feeling important, the, 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 deeper, the deeper stuff. Um, when that's not addressed and that's for more like a psychodynamic angle i have noticed that that could have devastating and long-term um problems and therefore i turned against the, the cognitive and behavioral and i thought it was just stupid it's, it's a band-aid solution you know i used all this like shaming demonizing language to describe it and you know as a clinician i have you know so in favor of addressing core traumas and core issues and um getting to the source. And as a clinician, I have evolved over time to see the value of short-term functionality and staying the value of staying busy, the value of, you know, keeping your life fun and um, positive in the short term as in conjunction with addressing the more long-term, um, increasing the long-term quality of life, the deeper healing that needs to take place. So I've come to understand that you, you kind of need both you know, I see the, in terms of therapy that the prime mandate, primary mandate of the therapist is the long-term, not the short-term, but kind of tapping into it as is necessary to prevent the client from getting overwhelmed or sunk inside the world of negativity and pain so that they could kind of get through their day-to-day uh, lives. Right. Do you feel that, um, I guess, bringing together, connecting the psychology and the coach aspect of things um, is kind of mixing the short-term and long-term or, uh, you know, things like that. Is that, is that kind of an angle that you take or, you know, where does that come in 
mixing the two. Yeah. So I don't like to, I mean, I'd love to do a little promo here, but I mean, the way I run my thing is that I do, let's say I do video modules to give them. And that's where I kind of put in kind of the psychological education aspect of it. You know, I do little quizzes and things to kind of get to give them the knowledge for the short term while in the one-on-one and group sessions that I do, that's, you know, where I focus on more of the long-term, but then I, we do create short-term functionality goals, even in those sessions, but that's not the focus of the sessions. Um, And that we just, I just follow through with them through daily texting accountability. We pick like three, like more CBT cognitive or behavioral methods to, to, to work on. And then we just do daily texting accountability for that. And that kind of fades in the background into the video modules, the texting, just daily action items. And then while the sessions are more focused on the healing work, seeing all of their parts as good, um, think things of that nature. Right. I'm curious, you know, obviously it's a, it's a pretty long road, you know, to become a PhD psychologist, right? It's not something that's simple. And, I, and, and in, in that aspect of things, I'm wondering, you know, I guess who's been for you like three people or so that has been like most influential in your pursuit to this dream, to this goal? Um, Three mentors that's been like important to you that's really, you know, pushing you through to get to that ultimate place that you want to get to. Before we hear more from our guests about that, I'd like to share a quick message. If what you're listening to is enjoyable, please give a follow, a share, a review. It'd be greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Now back to the show. <laughs> Great question. Um, yeah, and I wonder what you've learned from them. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a great question. I've, I have never thought about something like this before. Um, I would say, well, most directly, I would say is Rabbi Eitan Feiner. I asked him a question about, you know, whether I should do social work. Because I could have really, because people don't realize this, is that I'm in a four-year program now. I have to do, get a, I only, the reason why I went to Turo to get, become a psych major was because it was necessary to get, to get it, not just from a BTL to apply to a doctoral program or Excelsior. You need like a, a more serious degree right. to, to get there. So it was really, it's more of like a six-year track. And then if you include the licensure and the 1700 hours you have to do in supervision and the NASP exam you have to do afterwards. So you're dealing with more of like a seven or eight year trek mm-hmm. um, versus a master's program, which would be a two, which would be really, I could have went straight from a BTL into an L, the LIU new seminary, whatever it is, that type of program. Um, and um, so it was, it was a big decision for me. Um, and the way Robert Feiner put it to me and it really resonated was he said, he said, become the master of whatever you do. He says, if you're doing it, do it right. Um, don't try to get shortcuts. Become the best in it. And he said, there's a huge need right now for psychologists who are competent and fully trained and educated to treat, especially someone that I have a yeshiva background. I was in Tomo for two years, on the Mir for two years, on Shigodola, five towns for a bunch of years. So I have a strong yeshiva education. So I think that many yeshiva bachim are going to be very, would be normally very um, cautious or hesitant about hearing the, the value and the glories of mental health from an outsider who doesn't understand or appreciate definitely not the complexity and nuance of yeshiva life, right. the culture, the religion, there's so much there. So 
they, he felt very strongly that they could become the master of your trade. And I, that really was something I took to heart. Um, and that's why I decided I'll go this, this, the seven-year route versus the two to three-year route. Um, yeah, so that was one figure. Um, I would say my brother Shia has been probably the most instrumental and supportive of me in my goals and getting me along, you know. It's been quite a journey for myself and he's really been like kind of like that loyal soldier, more like the loyal general, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um, kind of pushing, you know, getting me to along being just, you know, kind of that unconditional support. Um, you know, I, I've also, you know, I will give credit to some of my other Rebbe too, you know, Rabbi, Rabbi Katzenstein, um, Rabbi, you know, from Taurus, I think I've really been very open to hearing, you know, very painful, very uncomfortable things from all of my rabbis from the past. There have been, a lot of them have been strong mentors, Rabbi Samber, Rabbi Muslim, Rabbi Fishman, um, Rabbi Resnick, Rabbi, Rabbi Elephant played a very big role, Rabbi Rosner. I, I really, <laughs> I have my whole council here. <laughs> council, yeah, no, council. I mean, it, it just means that yeah. you really reach out to, to people with a little bit more life experience. And that's really something to be you know, proud of. And I'm curious, you said something before in terms of the yeshiva world and um, you know, therapy, psychology, and things like that. I wonder like your thoughts on this, in a way, the stigma of it or just the idea of it and where you see it going and, and what's your thoughts on it now and how people react to it. Yeah, there's been a huge shift in the from world over the past decade or really past really two or three decades where it's become something that, you know, you're going to psychologist. Does that mean you're crazy? Like, you don't need it, do you? Like that type of mentality towards it versus, you know, based in like ignorance and kind of denial within the from world to and now being a point where people are like, Mishpacha Ami, stop, you know, let's not just talk about mental health in these magazines. Let's also have something about Corona right now. I'm just kidding. But like, you know, that's like the two only things they're going to mention. So, um, yeah, so I think there's been a huge positive movement. I do think the from world generally when it comes to cultural problems, as well as cultural, any cultural movement, which is the secular world has moved faster probably five to 10 years ahead of where the firm world is today in the normalcy of it. Like in the firm world, you go, you say, um, you, you don't go up to someone and say, Oh, and who's your therapist in the second amongst millennials. It's very common. It's like, Oh, my therapist said this. It's so I feel like we're a little bit behind, but I see a very positive movement. I know the person I work for Rabbi Shai Cohn, he was, played a very strong role in pushing for both Imuna and Bitachon in classrooms, but also the need for more substance abuse centers and mental health field. He, he started his organization priority one, you know, targeting, um, you know, at risk within the Jewish community. Um, he targeted that at 1987. So that's been, that was a big, you know, that was a big shift. Yeah. Um, when I asked the question, I, I was yeah. in the, I, I was on, on the the I guess side like seeing that trend moving in that way. I might have asked it like thinking like it wasn't, um, but I want to know like your your thoughts and I, I guess you see it really making 
uh, big strides. Um, but I, I do see it as like it's still a little behind. But at the same time, I, I yes, the magazines have it because that's like the bigger and, and people who are on the side of like being more vulnerable talk about it. But like I'll still have people reach out to me who don't want to comment on my post, but they'll, you know, reach out in private or a lot of people, uh, they don't really want to make things public or, um, you know, even share a video or things. People have a lot of trouble being vulnerable. Um, so it's one thing saying that I go to therapy. It's one, it's another thing being actually vulnerable to people who aren't in a closed room with you, you know? And I think that's, that's happening a little more, but do you, do you, do you think that's got a little bit more time and being really vulnerable and being, yeah. what do you, what do you, what do you feel about that? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I yeah, that's what I was saying that it is like probably about like 10 years behind like the rest of the world right now. Um, but it's definitely moving. It's definitely moving in the right direction. Um, I'll tell you my experience I had. Yeah. I, I had a, I was trying to do a promotion for my, um, my WhatsApp group um, or for my Fox coaching and to just raise awareness that, you know, what I, what I do. And I was like saying, I'll pay people per view, send me a picture of how many views you got and I'll pay you per like a few cents per thing. And a bunch of like, you know, teens, you know, um, reached out to me and they're like, okay, sure. I'll do that. You know, um, within a week they, they were all gone. And they said to me, like, people were reaching out to them, oh, is everything okay? Is there a problem? Is there, is there something wrong? And they were just like, whoa, I can't advertise for this. People think I'm crazy. People think there's something wrong with me now. So, so, I, so now I, I lost my um, – I got canceled. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> I got canceled by the shame, this, this tremendous shame and, uh, of behind it. Um, I do think that in terms of the reality is that I think at least half of the from world is in therapy, if not more. So I think the reality, the reality on the ground is that the Rebbeim are referring people to therapists when it's out of their league. I think they're becoming, it's becoming far more universal, very strong. I see very powerful movement, but as you're just saying, from my experience, from your experiences, there's still much to be desired. And I think, but awesome. I think it's, I think that's the direction, the trajectory is still there. Um, I don't think necessarily we need some, we, what do we need to do differently? I think just us being ourselves here, me, you on this podcast, talking very openly. I think the magazines, I think newspapers, I think they're a BAM referring people. I think that's, you know. Just keep the trajectory going up. Yeah, exactly. No, that's, 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 that's what it is. I wonder, like, in terms of, you know, moving on, like working as an online life coach, um, how's it, for you, like, how's it transformed in a way you personally as somebody who takes action in life, in your own life? Because I do want to speak about, you know, this is living intentionally is about taking action. So I wonder, like, in your own life, how has it, you know, transformed you personally in taking action? <laughs> great point i have a line i say that if i'm 10 percent of what i tell my clients to do i'm in great shape <laughs> I like that. um it does raise a different problem that i've that i've had to face with myself kind of like imposter syndrome which means um 
like I'm a coach, I'm a therapist, you know, I am actually doing therapy at my, my externship in Brooklyn college now. So I'm, I'm actually doing it. And at the same time, I'm like, am I really a coach? <laughs> like I have my own problems. I have to get my own life together, you know? And, but what I've come to realize, and I've written about this, like I've written about this journey of mine on, you know, on my LinkedIn, Facebook. And I, what I wrote is, we're all hypocrites. And I, I think I'm informed partly from a Jewish perspective. Like we say in Asher Yetzar, we say, Hashem does wondrous actions. And one of those wondrous actions, what Rashi says, which is like, it's said as like a neutral point. I mean, there's no specificity. It's ambiguous what the wondrous thing that he did was. But Rashi says that in Asher Yetzar, it's combining the body with the soul, combining two entities, um, two realities that are opposite. Right? We literally define spirituality as, the, the, as um, an energy or however, whatever word you want to use that is beyond space and time. And physicality is completely confined by that. So I see that there's in, kind of like a built-in um, endemic, intrinsic, <laughs> that's my thesaurus right there, um, built-in um, dichotomy or hypocrisy that we have between our physicality and spirituality. And then there's also going to be it's that's going to have a carryover effect in our ability to, you know, the fact that we're given free will, sometimes we'll make good choices and sometimes we'll make less good choices and sometimes we'll make okay choices and sometimes we'll make bad choices, you know, or evil choices. And I think that it creates, I think within humanity, there's a built in hypocrisy. And I think that really helps me come to understand that if I wait to help people until I am fully healed, I'm fully good and i'm fully in sync with every i can only help someone in an area that i'm fully better in then i'm gonna be waiting the rest of my life i'm not gonna be there to impact the world and i think i have incredible abilities i think i'm very talented i think i could give over so much to people why should i be so selfish as to hold back so i could feel more sincere about more authentic about myself until i can impact the world in this way is that really what God wants for me? So I see that there's intrinsic um, hypocrisy. And I think that's going to be, I think there's always going to be that hypocrisy there and becoming more comfortable with that and understanding um, that that's going to be there regardless and no matter how hard I work and just realizing that that should not prevent me from giving over to other people as well. That's awesome. I think that, I think that aspect of things hold a lot of people back from, you know, giving their opinion sometimes or um, going to a profession that they want to go into because they're like, you know, let's say somebody likes, you know, handling money, but they don't have their finances perfect. I wonder in that case, does it, is it the same? Does it, you know, transfer the same as you're saying, or, or is it like only in like when you're talking about life, like real life in general, or it's even those aspects of like financials, like, does a financial manager need to have his finances perfect? Right. So obviously I don't think so. Right. Uh, I think, I think it does establish greater credibility. And I think, as I said in the first, the first statement I made coming on here is that the ability to the degree that a person heals themselves will build the capacity they have to heal others. So I think that that's going to be true anyway, but that doesn't mean that it's a prerequisite that you, you can't even start helping people until you're fully better. I don't think that's true. 
And I think that is a block people have. But in terms of, let's say, other fields, I think the reason why there, there is more, I think people feel it more so in my field versus, let's say, financial advisor or career coach or things of that nature is because I think there's this defensiveness. And people kind of understand that a coach or therapist, they're going to push you. They're going to stretch you. They're going to take you to places that are painful and uncomfortable. And I think it's kind of like when people have that reaction to their rabbeim, the rabbis. That rabbi thinks he could tell me what to do. Oh, he doesn't look at his children. Look at his, look at, you know, does he daven with Kavana? I saw him one time. He, he said I should wear a hat. I saw him one time davening without a hat. Oh, the rabbis, they're not wearing the masks. I think there's a big desire to shoot people down as a defense, as a legitimate, I understand, I'm not saying legitimate as they should be doing it, but as legitimate, there's a legitimate need people have to not be pushed too much into their pain and uncomfortable points of the, that they have inside themselves. And I think that defensiveness causes people to specifically in service or helping fields to make, to hold these people to a standard, which is not, they're humans and that shouldn't, they're the messengers. Don't shoot the messenger. Um, they're bringing, they're, they're, they're helping you with your problems. The rabbis, they're giving up. A lot of these people are people who could, if they, you know, if we went into finance, we'd kill it, you know? Where people are very talented, very driven, very committed, who are very much willing to learn and get mentors. That's the people who make it in life. And if we would have went to a different field, you, you, you come these millionaires in two seconds. So these are people who sacrifice that type of lifestyle to be givers and to be givers to directly impact people. And I think that when people realize that, then there's not such a strong need to, to shoot them down, to realize that they're giving you a message. Who cares about them personally? The only question should be, is this useful to me? Is it true? And is it useful? That's the only two questions should be asked. It doesn't matter who the messenger is, how low many call them. That's, that's what a wise person will do. So you could benefit from, from everyone's experiences without having to, you don't need to, to copy and paste from them because, to, to, and then you'll have their same problems. Just take the good from everyone. Right. And also like not being perfect in terms of like a, um, in a, in a, in a uh, career that's giving and what people could look at as hypocrisy. It's more about, do they have, like you were saying, like, do they have the right angle, the right information? Are they, what they're, is what they're saying true and then it's your choice the person who's receiving it's their choice to say um, am i going to take this or am i going to leave it on the table right so i like what you're saying with that and i and that goes to the the point of like in terms of being an online coach um in your you know in your field that's where you are an online life coach um which is super cool first of all like i'm sure a lot of people are like what does that even mean online so you know i'm sure we need a you know inform and, and educate people on that. And that's something that actually both of us are, you know, working on, I bet you're also working on that, educating people on like online. And, and, and that's a new kind of a new profession um, angle to take at things. But I wonder, you know, what are some, I would say, misconceptions, myths that you would like to speak on or debunk um, about being an online life coach? Or just life coach in general, but especially online. Yeah. Okay. So I'd like to start from my journey on this because I think that could really inform other people. Um, when I originally got my, was going for my certification, I got it from Chaya Belsky's Infinity Coaching. It's an ICF accredited 60-hour program, three months. Um, 
And I thought, honestly, I thought it was a joke. I'm like, coaching, it's just this way that there's no bar to get in to kind of do therapy on people, people who don't know what they're doing. They don't they're never supervised and they think they could be therapists. They're going to do more damage than they're going to do good. Um, yeah. And I thought it was a joke. The reason why I did it was I was thinking like, you know what, let me like kind of dabble in the more clinical space. You know, at the time I was just, a youth, I was just being a youth director maybe a little crisis counseling work, but not, you know, I wanted to see what this was like. And I did it primarily to boost my resume so I could get into a psychology doctor program. That, that was, that was the intent. And I did not take it very seriously. I thought I'll get through it what I can. And that, that'll be it. Um, I was not seriously considering pursuing it as an actual career choice. And I wouldn't have unless it was authentic to me. Um, so what changed, right? What changed for me was that I realized that it really just, it doesn't matter how much training a person has. I mean, it does, but it doesn't matter. It only matters as much as it defines the role of what they do. So let me give you an example, right? How long is a doctor in school for, right? A long time. A dermatologist, like my father. So he's in school for like 12 years. That's a crazy amount of time to be in school. A plumber could be, go to trade school for three months and be a very excellent plumber. So plumbers therefore don't know what they're doing. No, they, they, plumbers help fix with pipes. They, you know, that's what they do. And doctors deal with more of your body. And that's depending on what their role is, that defines what level of training they need to fit that role, right? The CEO of a business needs a different level of training than the janitor or the tech guy or, you know. So what I realized is that a life coach has a different role than a therapist. Um, a therapist's role is directly to solve mental health. And a coach's role is as a facilitator in there to get them to a specific result that is not directly um, a mental health solution. And once you realize that, then mental health is much more complicated. You, there's, 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 there's countless modalities in, in trying to uh, do things and therapists can cause damage. There's, there's the, the holding space, there's... I could just throw at you all this like jargon and stuff, but it's very complicated, very, very complicated. Coaching, I think, is more intuitive. And I think a lot of people either have it or they don't. And then if they get that certification or certain basic levels of training, I think they could do a good job as long as they don't overstep their mandate. I do think there needs to be more regulations so that people don't overstep. But overall, I think that since it's a different role, you need a different level of training. You don't need the same thing. I like how clear you are on that. And I'm sure that, you know, you've put a lot of thought into this because it's probably a question you asked yourself. You're like, okay, what's going on here? How am I working these two out? And what does this mean to me? Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you know, I wonder, is there, you know, a question, you know, what, what would be a question, you, you know, if you were on my side of the table and you were also on the other side of the table, what would you ask you? Good. <laughs> what would be something that you want to be asked or talk about or explain or, or give over? Wow. Um, I think one thing that I'd like to give over to everyone is for that people to realize that um, in self-help culture, 
I would say there's a big movement towards becoming fearless to, to kind of leave your past behind and become the new you, right? Every day is a new day. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that and a lot of benefit to, to that attitude. However, I also think there, that the thing that comes along with that, the danger of taking that approach is there's a disassociation or a meaning like a disconnecting between like pushing away repression, pushing away um, shaming um, and kind of denying that those parts of you are still a part of you today. So I see a person's past as the accumulation of their experiences and the lessons they've learned. And to me, turning away from that is firstly not useful to you. I think it's a very valuable part of you, but I also think it is a part of you. And it's not an option. There's no delete. There's no surgery that you could just then cut off those other parts of you. And although there are times we can have face periods of renewal and to refresh ourselves and realize that we don't need to be dominated um, by certain parts of ourselves, I think the goal for ourselves is to try to establish that every part of us is good. Every part of us is a part of us and cannot be pushed away. And the goal is to try to find a balance. And that will always be the problem is that there's always going to be some type of imbalance between, let's say, a person's, let's say a person's anxiety will take over everything or they're a victim and they see themselves as a victim their whole lives. I think a part of you is a victim. That's one, one of the many voices inside of you. So you're not completely defined your whole life as a victim, but it doesn't mean, but I think the other extreme is, is, is just as inaccurate to say, I am not a victim at all. No, if you had someone did something that very bad to you, it, part of you is a victim, but that's not what you need to define yourself and be dominated by that for your entire life, living a life of hopelessness and powerlessness and blaming and pointing fingers. That means the only part of you is, is a victim. So I think for me, the, always the mistake is not the emotion, the negative, the negative emotion or the pain. The, 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 for me, the problem is always going to be the imbalance. And my, when I work with people, that's what I'm really trying to reestablish for them. I'm curious what you said about the, you're still a victim, but it doesn't have to dominate you. Can you talk a little bit more? Like, are you able to move totally away from being a, that victim or a victim and you're totally not a victim 100% anymore? Like, Yes, maybe at a certain point you were a victim in a certain act or whatever it is. Someone took advantage. Someone did something to you. Um, but at the same time, like that happened in the past, you could learn from it. But why does that still have to be with you? Like be a part. Like you're still a victim. Like you can't just not be a victim at all anymore. So I understood that was a hard, that was a uh, controversial example, but. I, I do. I picked it on purpose because I think the extremes prove the points. Um, see, I don't see being a victim as something that is bad. That needs that would need to be removed or um, made to be a hundred percent like victim free. Uh-huh. I don't. See, I think there's a part of a person that let's say, meaning I think we could. I think the word victim has many. Parts that are, we're, we're, it's a bigger category, meaning there's a lot of subcategories to it. Um, I, see, I see a value in being powerless at times. Um, I think that's not something that we should just disregard. I think when, let's say, a person's in a situation of confrontation, I think a freeze response in a situation where if they were to 
as if you were to escalate the conflict, you would either get kicked out of school or get beat up. I think a freeze response is good. Don't don't get there and get and get hurt. Um, so I think, and I think the the experience of a freeze response is powerlessness. I think that's the same part of one itself. So um, I don't think it's a goal for a person to become victim free. I think a person could move out of it in terms of let's say living a life of paralysis and hopelessness and helplessness. I think you could leave that and that doesn't need to guide you, but I think it's not, I think the fact that that's happened to you and it created those emotions of powerlessness and, and those parts of you are activated. I think those parts of you are good and are real. And I don't, once you experience something, I don't believe that the parts that were created from the experience are ever, um, like like you, you eat food and then it like comes out the other side. I don't think it, I don't think it works like that. I see it as it becomes integrated. Another piece gets added to you, um, and it's going to be whatever part that's added to you is going to be something that'll be useful and good to you, in the correct dosage, in the correct context, in the correct time. Thanks for clarifying. I definitely you know have a, definitely more of understanding um, now, and, and I can see where it can be useful. But also, just like in any situation, I'm feeling like. Anything that happens to you in life, whether good, bad, or whatever it is, um, can be used um, to your advantage in a way um, if you learn how to do that. Um, and, and like, really, like, everything is kind of like feedback, and that's something that um, I've come to learn. Everything's like kind of feedback, and I'm sure that's kind of the same thing that you're going on here. Um, so that's awesome. I, I wonder, you know, as you know, I speak a lot about intention. And, you know, something that I want to ask all my guests is, what does living with intention mean to you? What does it fall under for you? What does it mean for you? That's a big question. Um, I think a few things. I think the biggest thing is kind of, reverse engineering your entire life. Um, and that sounds like that's a big statement to make, but kind of, let's say, I'll, let's say I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say I was a teacher in a classroom. I don't make like many, many teachers do is they, they teach whatever the textbook is, you know, the classic things to teach. And then it comes time to write the final. Then they're like, have to like scramble and like kind of make questions. So I think it's kind of the same thing for your life is that the ideal teacher would do is they would, first make the final. What do I want my students to walk away with? And then they would reverse engineer the process that, that by this entire study regimen, makes them fully equipped to then take the final and come out with that result. So I think that's kind of how we need to approach life is that in living with intention, in my view, is the, the short-term goals. You start with the broadest and, and the, the the most long-term aspects of your life. What do I want to die as? <laughs> kind of what do I want on my tombstone? Not to be too morbid, but then kind of working your way backwards, then saying, okay, so then what's my 10-year plan, five-year plan, two-year plan, one-year plan? How does that translate into a month plan, a week plan, a day plan, bite-size, incrementally grow? Um, and then living with that as a process, obviously it's not as smooth as I'm, or as easy as I'm making it out to be, but that kind of process where you're starting with the end in mind and then every day is getting to that end. I love it. I think I'm excited to hear everybody's 
response to that because I think it doesn't mean one thing and it could mean something different for everybody. Um, but I think the end result is kind of similar where it's how do we live better life uh, where we're taking action and um, really, you know, becoming who we want to really become deep down in us. So that's, that's pretty awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I think that's, I, it's something that I like, I've heard like say um, from Gary V is he t- thinks a lot about, you know, his funeral, you know, and, <laughs> you know, it seems funny, but classic Gary, <laughs> classic Gary, but you know, I guess uh, you're both touching on similar points here, but where can people like, you know, find you uh, reach out to you or just see your content or um, where is that? Oh, for sure. So, yeah, so I have tons of these links. You could go to, um, I think the main way to find me and what I encourage people doing is join my free Facebook group, Jewish Men for Joy, Balance, and Growth. You know, that balance ties into what we were discussing here today to create, create that thing where every part of you is good um, in the right dosage, in the right context, the right time. Um, you can also check me out at coachbensonfox.com. And yeah, my main place is you're going to, you're going to see the most content. The best content will be on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, always at Coach Benson Fox. Um, and yeah, I, I really enjoyed this interview. This is really nice, uh, really nice conversation. I'm excited that you enjoyed it. I definitely want um, my guests to enjoy uh, joining. So that's exciting. Um, thanks for sharing where people could find you. Uh, thanks for hopping on with us and sharing your insights. Um, you have a lot to share and, you know, I give you, you know, really just a blessing that you're able to kind of continue uh, sharing, continue guiding uh, Jewish men um, with uh, balance in life. Um, and thanks for coming on and, and, and talk to you soon. Absolute pleasure, Chaim. It's been, it's been such a, such a pleasure. Um, yeah, same. We'll, we'll definitely be on again one time. Awesome. Take care. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to the Living Intentionally podcast. Again, if you enjoyed, leave us a follow, give a share to a friend, and as well, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I also have a group on Facebook for Jewish men. It goes by Fit Yid Academy Health and Fitness Community. As well, you can follow me on Instagram, at the Fit Yid. On Facebook and LinkedIn, it's Chaim Loeb, C-H-A-I-M-L-O-E-B. I'm looking forward to talking with you, interacting, and getting to know you. Please reach out. I would love to talk to you. Have a great rest of your day.